you got your Bibles, and I hope that you do, turn in them now to Isaiah chapter 25. This Advent season, we've been looking at some wonderful prophecies from the prophet Isaiah. Isaiah prophesied to the southern kingdom of Judah as they were being assailed by enemies both from within and without, attacked and exiled by the surrounding nations around them, and battling against sin and doubt and temptation within their own ranks. And into this season of suffering and desolation, of exile and battling against enemies, the Lord gives to them a prophecy of a coming king. He was the little child to be born in Isaiah 9, who would be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. He was the the branch in Isaiah chapter 11, the root from the stump of Jesse, the one who was promised to rule and reign on David's kingdom and David's throne forever. And he was the great shepherd and comforter last week of Isaiah chapter 40, the great shepherd who would come and tend his flock and carry them, as he said, in his bosom. And today, this morning, he is the one who rescues his people by laying waste to the city of man and erecting a new city, the city of God. All the prophecies that we've been looking at in our study through Isaiah this Advent, including this morning's prophecy, are pointing to a time which for Isaiah's people, the people of Isaiah's day, was a time that was still yet to come. The babe had not yet been born. The, the branch from the stump of Jesse had not yet sprouted. And so these are promises of the future. These are things that had not yet occurred. And so for them, this was the hope of a future rescue. And, and, and the hope of this future rescue is what they clung to throughout their uh, battles, throughout their exile. For generations and generations, they clung to the hope that Yahweh would send to them a rescuer. And so they waited, and they waited, and they waited, and they hoped, and they hoped, and they hoped. And then in God's perfect timing, he sent his son. The God-man, Jesus, put on flesh and became a man lived among us, lived a perfect life, and went to the cross for the sins of man. This Jesus was the promised child to be born from Isaiah 9. He was the branch from Isaiah 11. He was the one who would save his people from their sins. He died on the cross, taking on himself the punishment for the sins of all those whom he came to save. And then he rose three days later, effecting their salvation. Now, By God's grace, those who put their trust in Jesus Christ alone and turn from their sins have the hope of rescue. They are forgiven and reconciled to God, and they are given everlasting life with Him. But while Jesus fulfilled much of these prophecies that we've looked at in His first advent, He didn't fulfill them all in His first advent. By God's divine wisdom he designed this current age in which we live in between the first advent and the second advent of christ 
to be a time of the gathering in of all of God's elect. This is the gospel age. This is where there is good news in the here and now for sinners. There is grace available from this God against whom we have all rebelled and sinned against. And there's hope for rescue through repentance of sins and faith in Christ alone. But there is coming a day when the end of that grace will be seen. A time foretold by these prophets and illustrated in John's revelation. When this child, this branch will return. Not as a child. Not as a babe. Not as a suffering servant. But as a conquering king to set up his earthly kingdom forever. And so as God's people in Isaiah's day, suffering in exile and desolation, longed for the coming of this king, longed for that first advent, the arrival of this child, and the, and the shooting forth of this branch from the stump of Jesse. So God's people today, the church, long for his return. And at Christmas... We celebrate the first arrival of Christ, which the saints of old longed for for so long. But this season of Christmas is also a time of longing for us. It's also a time of waiting for the saints of our day as we look forward with great anticipation to his return. So let's listen to another one of these prophecies This one found in Isaiah, the 25th chapter. O Lord, you are my God. I will exalt you. I will praise your name. For you have done wonderful things, plans formed of old, faithful and sure. For you have made the city a heap, the fortified city a ruin. The foreigner's palace is a city no more. It will never be rebuilt. Therefore, strong peoples will glorify you. Ruthless nations will fear you. For you have been a stronghold to the poor, a stronghold to the needy in his distress, a shelter from the storm and a shade from the heat. For the, for the breath of the ruthless is like a storm against a wall, like heat in a dry place. You subdue the noise of the foreigners as heat by the shade of a cloud, so the song of the ruthless is put down. On this mountain, the Lord of hosts will make for all peoples a, ri- a feast of rich food, a feast of well-aged wine, of rich food, full of marrow, of aged wine, well-refined. And he will swallow up on this mountain the cover- covering that is cast over all peoples, the veil that is spread over all nations. He will swallow up death forever. And the Lord God will wipe away tears from all faces, And the reproach of his people he will take away from all the earth, for the Lord has spoken. It will be said on that day, behold, this is our God. We have waited for him that he might save us. This is the Lord. We have waited for him. Let us be glad and rejoice in his salvation. For the hand of the Lord will rest on this mountain, and Moab shall be trampled down in his place, as straw is trampled down in a dunghill. And he will sprout out his hands in the midst of it as a swimmer spreads his hands out to swim. But the Lord will lay low his pompous pride together with the skill of his hands. And the high fortifications of his walls he will bring down, lay low, and cast to the ground, to the dust. Let's pray. 
Gracious God, we thank you so much for your word. And we thank you for this prophecy that talks about a, another city, a city that you're building, Lord, for the redeemed of the ages to dwell with you forever. And Father, may the vision of this city compel us to continue to persevere in our faith in this city. And Father, may we seek to see reflections of this city to come among the kingdom of God that is at, at play in the here and now among God's people. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Some scholars refer to chapters 24 through 27 as a tale of two cities. In Charles Dickens' classic by that name, the two cities were London and Paris. But for Isaiah, it's a contrast between what we might call the city of man and the city of God. In chapter 24, what is in view is the whole earth. Leading up to that are all of these little judgments. Judgments over little nations, not little nations, but individual nations, specific nations and cities. Babylon, Tyre, Sidon, Syria, Damascus, all of this. But in chapter 24, it broadens to encompass the whole world. What's in view there is all of the earth and all of its inhabitants envisioned as a grand city, the city of man. In verse 10 of chapter 24, he writes, the wasted city is broken down. In verses 12 and 13, he says, desolation is left in the city. The gates, presumably of this city, the gates of the city are battered into ruins, for thus it shall be in the midst of the earth among the nations. And so... The city of man, the great civilization of mankind on the earth, as great as it was in Isaiah's day, and greater still in our day, will one day come to utter ruin. She, the city of man, will one day be made desolate. But she looks good today, the city of man. She looks mighty and strong and proud. She has progressed and advanced in many ways. Numerically, commercially, economically, philosophically, certainly technologically. But because she has rejected the Lord and transgressed her, her, His ways, and because she has turned to her own ways, the city of man will come to complete and utter destruction but chapter 24 alluded to a faithful remnant that would be rescued. There's a faithful remnant that would not see that desolation and destruction. And so God will build for this remnant a new city, the city of God. And that's what's in view here in chapter 25, which we just read, the city of God. In Augustine's great work by that name, he refers to the city of man as ephemeral, temporary, lasting but for a time. It won't last forever. Like the cities of our day that we know, they won't last forever, according to God's word. But the city of God is eternal and everlasting. But here's the, here's the thing I want us to keep in mind as we look at the city of God in chapter 25. And this is very important for us to grasp what I think Isaiah is wanting us to walk away with. 
And that is that the city of God is not all future. The city of God is both now and not yet. It was inaugurated at that first Christmas morning when the Christ child came into this world, when God put on flesh and became a man. The mortal blow against her enemy was dealt at Calvary, but her consummation is still yet to come. It's in the future. And so today we live in the middle. We live in between the inauguration of the city of God and the consummation of the city of God. We live in the middle. And just as final judgment on the earth is still yet to come, the final judgment of the the city of man is still yet to come, so the final consummation of the city of God, God's kingdom, is still yet to come. Those things are still out there. But we see reflections of them both today. Reflections both of the final judgment of the city of man as well as reflections of the final consummation of the city of God. Isaiah is pointing to the final judgment back in chapter 24 of the city of man. But do we not see reflections of that final judgment in the depravity and evil and suffering that we see in the world today? Of course we do. We see it all around us. And in the same way, while chapter 25 here paints a picture of the city of God, that new city, the the new Jerusalem, which of course is primarily future, do we not see reflections of that city among the people of God, the church of Jesus Christ today? Church, that's that's what I want us to drive to today as we look at this picture of the city of God in chapter 25 of Isaiah. We ought to not only be filled with an encouragement and a hope for the future which holds this city of God that's coming, but we ought to strive to see reflections of that city. Imperfect, but recognizable reflections of that city in the church today. Because the church of today ought to be, should be, a kind of model home for the the grand development, neighborhood, city that that God is building for us. The, 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 The city of God in which the redeemed of the ages will dwell with Him forever. We ought to see reflections of that city among the people of God today in the church of Jesus Christ. And so I want us to look at five pictures of the city of God here in Isaiah chapter 25, but I want us to keep those two perspectives in mind. In one sense, we our our, our faith in God is buttressed by the promise of the city of God to come. And just as the saints of Isaiah's day clung to the hope of the arrival of the shoot from the stump of Jesse, so we cling to the hope that the city of God is being erected for us. But at the same time, we ought to look for and seek to see imperfect and yet recognizable reflections of that city among the people of God today. So five pictures of the city of God. First of all, 
We see here the city of God portrayed as a place of worship because God is its rescuer. It's a place of worship. He begins in verse 1, singing a song of worship. Isaiah sings, O Lord, you are my God. I will exalt you. I will praise your name. For you have done wonderful things, plans formed of old, faithful and sure. And this is followed up in verses 2 and 3 by two words of causation. Verse 2 begins with the word for. Verse 3 begins with the word therefore. Both of those are words of causation. So that means that the worship in verse 1 is caused by what God does in verse 2. And what God does in verse 2 further causes what happens in verse 3. What happens in verse 3? He says, Therefore strong peoples will glorify you. Cities of ruthless nations shall fear you. Who are those strong peoples and ruthless nations? In verse 3, I take these to be the surrounding nations of Judah who will see what happens in verse 2 and as a result of what they see, they will glorify God and they will fear God as a result of what he's done. So verse 2 is the trigger. It's the trigger for both verse 1 and verse 3. So what happens in verse 2? For you have made the city a heap, the fortified city a ruin. The foreigner's palace is a city no more. It will never be rebuilt. In other words, God has in view here, he's destroyed the city of man. He's brought judgment. And now as a result of that, the strong peoples, the ruthless nations glorify God and fear God. Because God has defeated the enemies of his people. So the destructions of God's enemies in verse 2 is the ground for two things. It is the ground for both the glory that the ruthless nations will give to God, but it's also the ground for the glory that God's people will give to him in worship in verse 1. And I love how Isaiah sings here the, the song of glory to God. For, get this, for things he has yet to do as if he has already done them. Look at the past tense of verse 2. He says, for you have made the city a heap. Past tense. You, you've made the city a heap. The fortified city. You, you've made it a ruin. The foreigner's palace is a city no more. It's no longer a city. It's been, it's been torn down. It'll never be rebuilt. But remember, in Isaiah's day, the city, referring to the, the, the great strong nations around Judah, the city there was not a heap in his day. And it certainly was not a ruin. It would be, but it wasn't yet. And the mighty nations and, and great human civilizations of our day who oppose God and reject his son and oppose the gospel still stand today right? Mighty and proud today. But there will come a day when they will be made also a heap and a ruin. This would be like us today praising God for the judgment and the punishment that he has brought on the civilizations of mankind for their rebellion against him, even though from our perspective of time and space, those things have not yet occurred. Listen, genuine worship, this is what I think we ought to get out of this. Genuine worship glorifies God, not just for who he is and what he's done, but for what he will do. 
We ought to be so confident in what he will do according to his word, according to the promises he's given us in his word, that we thank him for having already done it. Lord, we thank you for seeing us through to the very end. He hasn't yet, but he will. We can thank him that he's done it. Lord, we thank you so much for bringing an end to this world of suffering and sin and welcoming us into your presence. Those are things that are still yet to come. They're promises that are given to us. But we can praise them as if they've already happened. And and get this. Our confidence in what he will do is buttressed by the fact that he kept his promise to send the rescuer, the Lord Jesus, the first time. We look back and celebrate the fulfillment of that for which the people of God of Isaiah's day could only long for and hope for. And this gives us greater confidence that our rescuer will return as promised to make all things new. City of God is a place of worship because the Lord our God is its rescuer. Secondly, it's also a place of safety because God is its protector. It's a place of safety. Look at verses 4 and 5. For you have been a stronghold to the poor, a stronghold to the needy in his distress, a shelter from the storm and a shade from the heat. For the breath of the ruthless is like a storm against a wall, like heat in a dry place. You subdue the noise of the foreigners. As heat by the shade of a cloud, so the song of the ruthless is put down. Are you in distress? Are you in a storm? Is there heat in your life from which you just need a little bit of shade? There is safety in the city of God because God is its protector. He's the stronghold for the needy. He's the shelter from the storm. Does that mean that we won't experience suffering in this life? No, it doesn't. In fact, we're promised suffering in this world of sin. But we have a shelter amidst the storm. And we have a refuge from the heat. So that it will not consume us or cause us to fall away. Our God will never leave us or forsake us. And there's nothing in this life that can make that promise, much less keep it. This city of God is a place of safety because God is its protector. Better than that, it's a, it's a promise of a, of a city where there will be none who are poor or needy. There will be none who are in distress or in a storm. It's a place of safety. Thirdly, it's a place of feasting because God is its generous host. It's a place of feasting. I love this. Look at verse 6. On this mountain, the Lord of hosts will make for all peoples a feast of rich food, a feast of well-aged wine, of rich food, full of marrow, of aged wine, well-refined. This is a reference to that marriage supper of the Lamb that we spoke of earlier when we took the Lord's Supper. That feast in which all of the redeemed of the ages will take part in when we're reunited with our Redeemer in glory. After the Last Supper with his disciples in the upper room, Jesus instituted the Lord's Supper and he said this in Matthew 26, verse 29. 
I tell you, I will not drink again of this fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. This is what Isaiah is singing about here in verse 6. Note that he says it's for all peoples, literally all nations, all people groups, people from every nation, tribe, tongue, and race. And it's a feast that brings complete satisfaction and delight. It includes rich meat and marrow. This is the the, the fatty portions of the meat, the, the choice portions of the meat that are rich in protein and nutrients, the best parts. And the wine is both well-aged and well-refined. In other words, it's the best of the wine. And it delights supremely and satisfies completely. Isaiah here is is intentionally contrasting this with the wine that is served in the city of man. Listen to the previous chapter, verses 7 through 9, as he describes the wine that's served in the city of man. The wine mourns, the vine languishes, all the merry-hearted sigh. The myrrh of the tambourines is stilled, the noise of the jubilant has ceased, the myrrh of the lyre is stilled. No more do they drink wine with singing, strong drink is bitter to those who drink it. What the city of man has to offer will not satisfy. It will not ever satisfy. It causes mourning and languishing. There is no ultimate joy or satisfaction. The happiness and joy that is offered in the city of man will never ultimately satisfy. It will always leave us thirsty and hungry. But the city of God will serve wine and choice meats that will satisfy forever satisfy our appetites forever just as when we took the bread and juice earlier in our observance of the lord's supper this picture of nourishing the body with meat and wine ought to also remind us that our spiritual nourishment comes from the lord and while the soul that seeks nourishment from the city of man remains hungry and remains thirsty the soul that seeks nourishment in the city of god is never hungry again and is satisfied completely and his thirst is quenched so let us eat and let us drink not from what the city of man has to offer but from what the city of god has offered the rich and choice meats the well-aged and well-refined wines of the city of God. Let us feast on the bounty of God's word. Let us drink deeply from the well of Christ and his word and his spirit in us. What a foretaste that is. What a foretaste that is of the banquet of nourishment that awaits us in the city of God. C.S. Lewis writes in his famous work, Mere Christianity, If I find in myself a desire which no experience in this world can satisfy, the most probable explanation is that I was made for another world. The degree to which we hunger and thirst for more and more and more in this world and in this city 
that our appetites in the here and now are never truly satisfied ought to point us to a great banquet that is to come. So let's feast at Christmas. Let's eat our turkey, let's eat our ham, let's eat our roast beef, or whatever it is that you will serve. Let's eat and be satisfied. And we won't be hungry for quite a while after we eat that feast. But eventually we will be. Eventually we will hunger again, we will thirst again, and we will need to eat again. And when we do, let us remember that our feasting in this world, our literal feasting on food and drink, and our figurative feasting on Christ and His Word is but a foretaste of the great banquet that will be ours one day in the city of God. It's a place of feasting because God is its generous host. Fourthly, the city of God is a place of joy. It's a place of rejoicing because God is its mighty victor. Look at verses 7 through 9. And he will swallow up on this mountain the covering that is cast over all peoples, the veil that is spread over all nations. He will swallow up death forever, and the Lord God will wipe away tears from all faces, and the reproach of his people he will take away from all the earth, for the Lord has spoken. In the city of God, there will be no more suffering, no more death, no more tears, no more mourning, the Lord God will swallow that up. Isn't that great? He will swallow up death forever. The covering that is cast over all peoples in verse 7 is death. Death will be no more because the Lord God has already swallowed it up by sending the Son to satisfy the sins of all men. Jesus Christ paid that price, rose from the dead. Death has been swallowed up in victory, Paul says. There will be no more death in the city of God. What about the reproach of his people in verse 8? What's that? Well, I just think that's, that's all the ways in which the people of God, of Isaiah's day, of our day, and of the days to come until Christ returns, suffer reproach. Whether it's the reproach of Pharaoh hundreds of years before Isaiah, or the reproach of the Assyrians and the Babylonians of Isaiah's day, or the reproach of the Romans in Jesus' day, or the reproach of a secular and godless world in which we live today and to which we have been sent. It's the reproach of suffering and sin for God's people. It's the reproach of both outward persecution and indwelling sin. It's the reproach of God's people living in exile, whether it's the exile of Babylon in Isaiah's day or whether it is the exile of living in 2022, this strange and foreign land in which we live. In the city of God, the reproach of God's people will be taken away, for the Lord God has spoken. And then I love verse 9. Look at verse 9. It says, it will be said on that day. What day is that? It's the day in which every tear is dried. All of death is swallowed up. All the reproach of God's people is taken away. And the city of God is made new. On that day it it will be said what? Behold, this is our God. We've waited for him that he might save us. This is the Lord. We have waited for him. Let's be glad and rejoice in his salvation. On that day the waiting will be over. And we will say, this is it. 
This is it. This is what we've waited for. Notice that Isaiah doesn't say this is what we have waited for. He says, in essence, this is who we've waited for. See, as great as it will be for every tear to be wiped away and for death to be swallowed up and the reproach of God's people to be taken away, as great as that will be, our rejoicing in that day will be because we have been reunited with our God. Behold, this is our God, he says. We have waited for him. The city of God is awesome because God is there. Your experience and my experience, if we are there in the city of God, will be incredible, but it will not be the city of God without God. The city of God is a place of joy because God is its mighty victor. And then finally, the city of God is a place of justice because God is the holy judge. Good verses 10 through 12. For the hand of the Lord will rest on this mountain and Moab shall be trampled down in his place as straw is trampled down in a dunghill. And he will spread out his hands in the midst of it as a swimmer spreads his hands out to swim. But the Lord will lay low his pompous pride together with the skill of his hands and the high fortifications of his walls. He will bring down, lay low, and cast to the ground to the dust. In the city of God, there will be perfect justice because he is the holy judge. We long for justice in this world, don't we? We want it. We want to see justice. Sometimes we see it, sometimes we don't. And when we do see justice in this world, isn't it always imperfect? It's imperfect justice. It's, it's always tinged with just a bit of injustice because it's pointing us to the perfect justice to come. And when we don't see justice in this world, which is most often the case, that too is pointing us to a day in which perfect justice will come in the city of God. We see the contrast here between these two cities, the city of man, the city of God, in these verses. Verse 10, for example, the hand of the Lord rests on this mountain. That's the city of God. That's the new Zion, the city of God. But on Moab, Moab shall be trampled down. Moab here, as elsewhere in Old Testament prophecy, is symbolic in reference to all of those who reject God and deny Him. And he says that they will be trampled down in verse 10, laid low in verse 11, and cast to the ground to the dust in verse 12. And this is perfect justice. Now our response to there being perfect justice one, one day ought to be met with kind of a, a complex response of mixed emotions. Part of us will be glad. Part of us will be sad. Part of us is glad that God will be glorified in the just judgment of sinners. And part of us is sad, maybe a better word is terrified, that some of those whom we know and love in this life will experience and be exposed to that perfect justice. We don't want our loved ones, our 
neighbors, our co-workers and friends to be trampled down, laid low, cast to the ground like dust. But if they do not run from the city of man and enter through the gate to the city of God, this will be their just reward. And friends, the Bible tells us that this is the just reward for all of us because of our sin and rebellion against God. Justice demands that our sin be paid for, that it be covered over and atoned for. It must receive just judgment and punishment. For our sin to not be paid for and to to not be atoned for is the epitome of injustice. And as the holy and righteous judge, God cannot allow that kind of injustice. And so, God made a provision for our sin in the Lord Jesus, this Christ child, the babe in the manger, the stump from the root from the stump of Jesse, who lived a sinless life and died in the place of sinners, paying for and atoning and covering over the sins of all those who would come to him in faith. And so for those who do come to him in repentance and faith, justice was served at the cross. But not all will come to him in repentance and faith. And those who do not still need justice. And one day it'll come. And friend, you do not want to be standing in opposition to God on that day. On that day, all, all of the residents of the city of man will receive justice for their rebellion and sin. And all of the residents of the city of God will receive grace and mercy for Christ was their sacrificial lamb. He was the recipient of what they deserved. By his stripes, we will be healed. So that babe in the manger is the only way to get from the city of man to the city of God. Everyone here is a resident of one or the other. And if you're a citizen of the city of man, you've not repented of your sins and trusted in Christ as your only hope to rescue you from what you deserve because of your sin, today can be the day of your salvation. Today can be the day of your salvation. Today can be the day that you enter into the city of God this place of worship, this place of safety, this place of feasting and joy and perfect justice. You can turn from your sin and self-rule and turn to Christ in faith, ask Him to forgive you, and trust in His death and resurrection for you as your only hope, and you will enter into the city of God. To the rest of us this morning, who are citizens of that city already, Remember that the city of God is not all future. 
The city of God is both now and not yet. It was inaugurated on first Christmas morning. And it will be consummated when Jesus comes in his second advent. And so as we seek to bring application to this text, I think there are two main takeaways. First, just as we've said each week in our observance of Advent so far, as we celebrate the inauguration of the city of God at the first advent of Christ, we also anticipate the consummation of the city of God in his second advent. And so the confidence that we have in his first coming ought to cause us to persevere in the faith and continue to engage in mission and to remain faithful to him as we cling to the hope that he will one day return and make all things new. And so we ought to live today as if it's true. We ought to live today as if we really believe that Jesus is coming back just as he came the first time. How, how would your life be different? How would your family different be different? How would our church be different if we clung to that with a grip that will never let go that Jesus is coming back and he will set up this city forever and we will reign with him in paradise? How will our lives be different if we cling to that hope? But secondly, as we consider this city of God as foretold by Isaiah, we remember that the city was inaugurated when Jesus came as a baby in Bethlehem. We should recognize that we ought to see reflections of that city today. Because it's inaugurated among the people of God, as Jesus announced, the kingdom of God is at hand. It's not just future, it's today. And so we ought to see imperfect but recognizable reflections of this city among the people of God today, in our church, in our homes, in our families, and even in our own lives. So what, to, to what degree are, are our churches and our base groups places of worship and safety? Where there is feasting, not just on literal food, but, but figuratively on Christ and His Word. To what degree are our gatherings places of joy and rejoicing for what Christ has done? Where justice is not just hoped for, but worked towards. How can our church, your base group, your home, be a better reflection of the city of God rather than a reflection of the city of man? Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you so much that you have you've not left us without the hope of what's next. Father, we thank you for this picture that we have in your word of what you're building, of that development, that, that, that city that's, that's under construction now, and one day we'll be welcomed into, and we will reign with you there forever. Oh God, may we cling to that, may we long for that, may we continue to wait patiently and anticipate that, and may our lives reflect that that is what we're living towards. Not the here and now, and not the city. And Father, may, may our church, may our homes, our base groups, 
May they be little model homes of that development that you're making. Father, may you use us for your glory until your son comes the second time. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.